How many people just love Andrew Sandlin's shirt today? All right. Okay, over to you, brother. There's actually a backstory. Yesterday, that shirt I had on, uh, Stephen comes up to me and he says, that shirt looks like it has an Islamic design. <laughs> right before he's lecturing on Islam. So I said, well, just for that, tomorrow I'm wearing my colorful California shirt. So that's the only reason you have to put up with that today. Seriously, this is my last talk, and I wanted to tell you... Um, I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Thanks to EICC and uh, to Stephen for the invitation. And thanks to all of you. You've been a very uh, courteous and uh, attentive and a gracious, thoughtful audience. I really appreciate that. Um, through some difficult lectures, um, difficult material, you've made your brain sweat. And even yesterday, your body sweat, right? So I'm very grateful for that. Uh, if you need like clarification or want to contact me or just want to be Facebook friends, I think on each of those outlines, the bottom, uh, the bottom of the outline, I think I've got all my contact information, right? So just feel free to, if you send me a, a, a Facebook uh, request, I'll just try to do my best to respond quickly. I realize that uh, Facebook these days is only for old timers. So, um, but I'm also on Instagram, and no, I don't do Snapchat, so don't even, don't even go there, so. Oh, you're so much, this is great, you're so much more alert today. That, that lecture yesterday afternoon, I mean, I had to wake you up, at least you're awake. All right, so, um, I'm talking today about the philosophy of science. Uh, when uh, people argue about Christianity and science these days, they often sort of hone in on some specific areas of, of conflict or alleged conflict. That's not really my concern in talking about the philosophy of science today. I'm not really suggesting that those topics aren't important. I'm dealing with the wider worldview issues. I'm not addressing the age of the earth. It's not millions of years old. I'm not talking about the length of creation days. I do believe in six-day creation. I'm not going to address whether Adam and Eve were historical figures, they were, or whether Darwinism can be reconciled with the Bible, it can't, uh, or whether the Noahic flood was universal, it was. Behind these topics really is a fundamental question that I'd like to answer today, or at least begin to answer, and that's this. How is science possible in the first place? How is science even possible? Very few people, even scientists, talk about that. Science is here. It's a part of our lives, and we simply accept it as a given. But why should it be a given? Why should there be such a thing as science? That's what I'm going to address today. And in so doing, I believe, vindicate the triune God of the Bible and the Christian faith. Now, you probably know that skeptic hostility to the Christian faith in our time usually comes in one of two forms. First the problem of evil in the world, right? Have you heard that before? If God's such a good God, why is there so much evil? Second is the spectacular success of science. Now, to many people, science is right and science conflicts with Christianity. So Christianity has to be wrong. Of these two objections, the first is by far 
the more serious one. Evil is real. Evil is pervasive. It's not an illusion. It can't be sidestepped. Illness and suffering and torture and savagery and war and death are realities of the fallen human condition. How do they square then with the goodness of an all-powerful God? The Bible does give us the answers to those questions. But we can't pretend those questions aren't valid or that they're trivial. When unbelievers and skeptics pose those questions, we need to be ready to give an answer. But, and this is the main point I want to make here, that simply isn't the case with the objection that Christianity is anti-science. In fact, anybody that would level such a charge is demonstrating a remarkable ignorance. So in this talk, I want to make uh, a couple of main points. One historical, which I'll just touch on, and one theological. First, modern science was launched by Christians and within Christianity. But more importantly, modern science could have been launched only by Christians and within Christianity. That's a pretty bold claim, isn't it? I'm saying not just are Christianity and science not in conflict. Science is possible only on Christian presuppositions. As strange as it might seem to the ears of modern secularists and even some half-educated Christians, science rests on the presupposition of the God of the Bible. If we don't start with God, we'll get science wrong. Science is possible because of Christianity. Now, if you have the outline there, I'm going to skip over that one section, the historical section. But if you would like the text of that, you've got my information there. Kind of email me, send me a Facebook uh, private message, and I'll send you this whole talk, okay? But I'm going now to the section of, I'm going to define science, and then I'm going to talk about Christian presuppositions that make science possible. Um, First, however, as I said, I need to define science, because a lot of people don't really understand what science is. We can't just assume everybody means the same thing when they use the word. Does anybody know etymologically, essentially denotatively, what science means? The word science just means knowledge. Science just means knowledge. But when we speak of modern science, we have in mind a particular kind of knowledge, don't we? It's knowledge of the physical world that's been repeatedly tested and experienced. Science, modern science, and that's how I'm using the term, is concerned with the physical universe. It's not concerned with metaphysics. It's concerned with testable physical reality. It's empirical. That means empirical. Okay, so what does empirical mean? Testable. Testable, right. Verified by our senses, testable in the material world, and not by pure logic or theory, which have their place. Uh, At the heart of science is the scientific method. The scientific method, in summary, is this, in case you didn't know. It's coming up with a hypothesis about the physical world, testing that hypothesis, and revising that hypothesis in light of additional testing. And by the way, not just you. It has to be repeatable. Other people need to do it in other parts of the world, and sometimes in earlier times. Now, there are many branches of science. As you know, there's biology and physics and astronomy and sub-branches like zoology, nuclear physics, medicine. What they all have in common is trying to arrive at knowledge of the physical world by testing and refining specific empirical hypotheses. Now, once it was thought that certain diseases could be countered by bleeding a patient, 
You may have known the first president of my country, George Washington. That was done on him. He had a disease, and people at the time bled him. They bled him to quote, get the disease out. Well, we know that hypothesis today. It's just flatly wrong. Why? Because people tested that theory and found it to be utterly wrong and painful and fatal in that case, by the way. In science, we get rid of false theories and replace them with more accurate ones. That, in summary, is the scientific method and science. Now, here's the main point I'm wanting to make and as we go through these. This entire approach to the physical world could have developed only on the basis of Christianity and Christian presuppositions. Enumerating the biblical presuppositions of modern science is going to tell you why. All right, let's start. First, the, uh, by the way, those of you who have outlines, you tell me what's first. The creator-creature distinction. It should be on there somewhere, right, in my outline? The creator-creature distinction. The Bible, of course, begins with that distinction. You think it's important? Pretty important. It's the first thing God said in the Bible. The very first thing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God stands above and apart from his creation. He created ex nihilo. Now, those of you that know Latin, what does that mean? Out of nothing. That means matter is not eternal. God created it. Before creation, there was nothing, no thing, no person but God. Therefore, God's not a part of creation. Now, he does enter and interact with it. And in this way, God is imminent, and of course, most graphically, in the incarnation of his son, Jesus Christ. But God doesn't develop along with his creation. God's not simply a part of the system, even the biggest and most important part. He's distinct from his creation. He created all things from nothing. He's the almighty God. His word is law. He's not conditioned by the cosmos. He conditions the cosmos. Now this introduces the great hierarchy of the cosmos. God stands above and is distinct from all creation below him. Now that distinction is, do you remember? I've used this before. It's a creational norm. It's a fundamental characteristic of the universe. It's ontological. The, creator, uh, the creator-creation distinction. This means it's part of the existence of creation itself. There's no creation without this creator-creature distinction. Now, because of that, Christianity is not pantheistic or panentheistic. Nature is not God. Nature is not deity. Nature is not deified. That's in sharp contradistinction to prominent expressions of ancient paganism. Let's take animism. Animism, for example. Animists believe that plants and animals and even inanimate objects contain or can contain a soul. Or panentheistically, they can contain God himself. So therefore, these objects or animals were held to be sacred. Now, think about it for a minute, if you will. You can imagine how such a view would discourage science. If the oak tree or a wild pony contains deity or divine spirit, you wouldn't want to experiment with or harness it or them for fear of offending the gods or interfering with the spirit world in some way. So there's no way science could have emerged from an animistic culture. Now, a different but similar case is that let's take Hinduism. Hindus believe in reincarnation, that when we die, our spirit often goes into another living being, usually another human, but sometimes an animal. If you live the good life, you'd perhaps be reincarnated as a holy 
person. If you were bad, you'd be reincarnated maybe as a bug or an insect. You'd come back as a mosquito. Now, cows are considered especially uh, sacred in Hinduism because Hinduism is a goddess religion, and the female milk-giving cow is considered the, the mother of life. Obviously, modern science could never have developed in a profoundly Hindu culture. And in fact, it didn't. If we can't study and manipulate animals because it's possible they're reincarnations of our ancestors, then science is simply impossible. In the words of Vern Poitras, the doctrine of creation desacralizes the creature. The doctrine of creation desacralizes the creature. This doesn't mean that man can treat creation any way that he wants. He may not. He's God's representative. And his authority over creation is delegated by God. However, creation is not God. See all of this beauty out here? It's created by God, but that's not God. Therefore, man isn't harming God by thoughtfully and compassionately examining and experimenting with creation. Now, man encounters God everywhere in creation because creation reveals God. But scientists don't interfere with God's being when they manipulate creation. The creator-creature distinction opens the way for experiments within the physical universe. The scientific method is simply not possible apart from that distinction. And it never was. Next, let's consider that second presupposition found in the Word of God. The orderliness and stability of the cosmos. Now, let me read for you just briefly Hebrews 1, verses 2 and 3. He, it's speaking of God the Father, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, who is the Father's Son. We know him as, this is a really hard question, only those, Jesus Christ, his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Did you get that? You understand that Jesus Christ is the mediator, not just of redemption, but also creation. Everybody get that, right? Okay. He, being the brightness of his, the Father's glory, and the express image of his person. Some translations say the exact imprint. What proof of the deity of Christ. And upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, I want you to listen to what Paul says quickly in Colossians 1, 16 and 17. One of the most remarkable verses in the Bible with respect to modern science. For by him, by Christ, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities and powers. All things were created through him and for him. And as he is before all things and in him all things. Does anybody know how it goes from there? Hold together, consist, cohere. Fascinating word, word in Greek. Now, we learn two vital truths relevant to science from these statements. One, God used his son to create the cosmos. He's the mediator. Two, the son now continually, continuously sustains the cosmos. That is, he's the sustainer. When Paul says that in Jesus all created things consist, he means that in Jesus, as we said, all things hang together. Now this is beautiful. Creation can't go haywire, not because of natural impersonal law, but because moment by moment, moment Jesus Christ, the very one that hung on the cross, 
that rose from the grave. That very one, moment by moment, is holding everything together. That's Paul's theology. His continual power sustains everything in creation. Man and animals and plant life. The laws of gravity, what we call the laws of gravity and thermodynamics. The self-healing of the human body. Planetary motion. The fiery sun. The reflecting moon. The galaxies beyond our own. Moment by moment, Jesus Christ, the one who died on the cross, is just holding everything together. Now, this is vital because science depends on constancy and stability. Now we take it for granted. Now let's think just for a minute, take one example, astronomy. Now nobody here is worried that tomorrow morning you're going to get up and there will be no sunrise. Right? You weren't worried about that last night, were you? Before you went to bed, you weren't like, oh, I can't believe it. I'm just worried. I'm just not sure about this. What if, what if we wake up and it's in the morning on our clocks and the sun hasn't come up? I dare say nobody really worried about that. And if you did, we have a place for you to move to with padded cells until you get over your insanity. We expect the sun to rise tomorrow, and even if there are clouds, we'll still see light from the sun. It's ridiculous to worry about that. But we should ask ourselves, why is that ridiculous? It's only ridiculous because we become accustomed to the stability and regularity of creation. But why should creation be stable? Why should it be regular? Only because Jesus Christ created it and sustains it. And the same is true with matter here on earth. Scientists perform experiments with antibiotics or with mice or with helium. And they expect that the results they get today will be about the same ones that they get tomorrow. And that their colleagues in China and Ghana and Norway will also get. Why? Because they assume the stability and regularity that Jesus Christ continuously provides. Now, if scientists didn't believe that experiments are dependable, that nature is regular and stable, there simply could be no science. I flew here from the west coast of the U.S. because scientists and engineers are convinced that the aerodynamics of the aircraft operate safely within the realm of the Earth's atmosphere. And you know what? They're right. Why? Because creation is stable. You know, God promised Noah this in Genesis 8. It's such a beautiful text about the regularity of creation. While earth remains, the Lord said to Noah, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. You ever read about all these scenarios and novels and TV about, oh no, we're afraid one day the sun's going to burn out and a long time before that, life on earth will be gone. That's just garbage. That's utterly false. We can rest easy about the future of creation because Jesus Christ continually sustains it. All scientists assume this truth, whether they assert it or not. Now, they may say they don't believe in God, but they must assume God in order to practice science. They must assume him in order to practice science. By the way, that's not the God of 18th century deism. How many of you know what deism is? Not nearly as popular today as it once was. Okay. This false god is the great... What was the metaphor that was used among the deists and how God related to the world? The great watchmaker. He created the universe like a watchmaker would create a watch. And he sort of wound up the universe to get it going. And then he just steps back and by natural law, impersonal law, he sort of lets it tick. This is the absentee landlord god. 
This is the God on vacation. He says everything in order, and then he says, oh, I got really tired, so I'm going to go on vacation. But that's not the God of the Bible. The universe doesn't operate according to impersonal laws. There are no, there's no such thing as impersonal laws. Laws are highly personal. People make them. God makes the ultimate laws that operate the universe, which really are an extension of his character and his providence, if we use that term law at all. And his son sustains these laws moment by moment, second by second. Now, I don't want you to underestimate what I'm saying. It really is remarkable and radical if you think about it. I'm saying that Jesus Christ is continuously providing oxygen for you and me at this very moment. And if he withdrew it, in about four minutes, all of us would be dead. Unless somebody here brought an oxygen tank, which you probably didn't. He's moving the winds across oceans and lakes and continents. He's sustaining the planets and their orbits. That's how stable the universe is. Jesus Christ is the stabilizing agent of all that we see. If scientists couldn't rely on that stability, there could simply be no science. And that's why as one noted Christian writer, Stanley Yockey, declares Jesus Christ is the savior of science. Jesus Christ is the savior of science. Then think about this third presupposition with me the one that makes modern science possible. The goodness of the material world. The goodness of creation. At the end of the creation day, God pronounced his work good. And at the end of the sixth day, listen to his final verdict. What was God's final verdict on all of his creation? He looked at it and he said, this is very good. God said, you know what? I'm pretty impressed. This is very good. Creation wasn't just good, it's very good. Now, this was far from the universally held view, historically, and even today. For instance, the earliest and most dangerous heresy to arise in the Christian church was Gnosticism. Anybody hear of Gnosticism before? Okay. You see, every religion, every philosophy, every worldview must account for evil in the world. Even those that deny it, they really can't deny it in the end. They may call it something else, but still, it's evil. For Christianity, that evil is the result of man's fall of creation. The defect is, in crea- is in, not in creation itself. The Gnostics believed, however, that there is a good God, impersonal, and from him emanated an inferior God. It's an amazingly elaborate cosmology that I won't go into. You can maybe study it later on your own. But eventually, through ignorance, this inferior, rebellious God, called a demiurge, created matter. This matter is evil. Only that which is not material can be virtuous or good. By the way, there was an ancient Greek philosopher, several, but probably the main one, who also believed that. What was his name? Plato, right? Not Plato. 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 Therefore, for the Gnostics, salvation is not from sin, but salvation is from matter or from creation. Jesus then came to save us from the material world. He came to save us from our bodies. Obviously, the Gnostics didn't believe Jesus possessed an actual physical body or actually died on the cross in a body or rose again in a body. I mean, what's the point of the resurrection? The entire goal of life is to get rid of the body, to get rid of creation, to get rid of the material world, to be emancipated from all this bad stuff. But according to Christianity, according to the Bible, this is not bad stuff. Yes, it's cursed because of man's sin, but it's not inherently evil. 
As I said, the Gnostics, uh, Gnosticism is paralleled in ancient Greek ideas of dualism. That is the idea there are two fundamental and fundamentally conflicting realities, matter and non-matter, the material and the spiritual, and the material is always inferior. Now, obviously, here's the point I'm wanting to make. I just wanted to go over that quickly. Obviously, science could not have arisen within those worldviews. If matter is evil, if the goal of life is escape from the material world, escape from creation, then harnessing the material world and learning its laws, its ways, in order to improve man's material life is useless. In fact, it's likely an act of evil itself. But you see, the Bible teaches that creation is, what? Very, very good. Therefore, there's nothing whatever wrong with using it to benefit man. The Bible says God's given us all things richly to enjoy, not just spiritual things. I mean, he's given us bananas and uh, really good beef and uh, water out here in which to swim. He's given us all these wonderful things to enjoy. Majestic mountains and apple trees and, and uh, great uh, freshwater rivers and all sorts of things. Yeah, they were cursed because of man's sin, but they're not inherently evil. Now, science is designed partly to harness this good creation so man can use it more effectively for his man's greater enjoyment. Science helps create antibiotics to fight bacterial infections. Question, is that a good thing? You bet. Physics allows us to build spectacularly tall yet very stable buildings. Is that a good thing? You bet. Complex sequences of zeros and ones allow the dramatic technological development of, of uh, computers and smartphones. Do you have a smartphone? Are you glad you have a smartphone? I mean, can it be used? Yes, it can be used for evil, but is it a good thing? You bet, it's a good thing. Now, of course they can be used for evil purposes. Beautifully designed mosques can house radical terrorists. An iPhone can receive and transmit pornography. Opiates can be used not simply for healing, but also abused and foster addiction. But the problem with these begins in the human heart, not in creation. If man doesn't recognize creation as inherently good, he'll have no incentive to interact with it to create a better culture. If humanity sees this created world as evil, he will only desire to escape. Now here's a sentence you might want to write down. Science is the antithesis of the desire for escape. Science is the antithesis of the desire for escape. It's based um, on the desire to harness the world for the betterment of man and properly understood for the glory of God. Science is possible because of the truth expressed in Genesis 1. Creation is very good. Then let's move quickly on to the fourth, and then finally to the fifth. The fourth theological presupposition of modern science is the dominion calling. We called it earlier the, what did I call it earlier? Cultural, Cultural mandate. mandate. Genesis 1, 18 to 20. Man's chief calling on the earth is to exercise responsible dominion over the rest of creation. We are God's deputies in the earth. We are earthly kings and queens under the Lord's heavenly, universal kingship. Recall that man's first specific task of cultural dominion was naming the animals. Now you realize, don't you, that he couldn't do that without fulfilling some aspects of what we would today call science, right? 
Aren't there scientific classification systems? Well, then who really, in that sense, was the first simple basic scientist in the history of the world? Adam. Adam. By observation, Adam had to know what these animals looked like. He had to see how they acted. He had to classify them. Horses resemble dogs more than they do worms. Now, I'm sure his naming wasn't arbitrary. He likely gave them names suitable to their appearance, suitable to their character. This required observation. It required weighing evidence. It, it uh, led to arrived at, arriving at conclusions. It was a basic form of science. And then, of course, after the fall, even after the fall, we read of Cain and Abel. Cain tilled the ground, and Abel tended the sheep. Guess what? Both required basic science. When should seeds be planted? When will the harvest come? Cain had to learn not to plant in harvest time and not to expect harvest during planting time. Abel needed to understand the care that sheep required. All of this required observation and testing basic hypotheses. Then later, even in Genesis 4, read Genesis 4 sometime. It really is fascinating. Kind of read over by some people in the Bible, and it shouldn't be. We read of Cain's descendants. They developed dominion in architecture, in livestock, in husbandry, in music and musical instruments, in manufacturing, in tools, in metallurgy. Now, obviously, none of these activities compares to our advanced science, but they all laid the groundwork for the science of our time. Despite their sinfulness, these early humans exercised their dominion impulse. One inescapable example is science. In fact, if you'll think about it, the Bible demands science. Far from being opposed to science or in conflict with science, the Bible demands science. It's simply impossible for man to fulfill the cultural mandate without practicing science. To, to exercise dominion over the rest of creation requires what we today term the scientific method. You can't exercise dominion apart from careful observation, developing hypotheses, testing those hypotheses empirically, revising the hypotheses, acting on those hypotheses for the improvement of humanity. Now, if you refuse to examine the physical world closely, as most of the ancients did, even the very smart ancients, particularly the ancient Greeks, they weren't into this at all. They would just like to go around and say, what is justice? What is beauty? Let us talk about it dialectically. These great, high, ethereal thoughts. They didn't really care much about this. It was just happened to be here. It happened to be an environment in which they could think. Beautiful, ethereal, seraphic, heavenly, ideal thoughts. If we refuse to make deductions about what we see, if we refuse to test those deductions in the physical world, if we refuse to take action on the basis of those deductions, we simply can't exercise dominion. You can't create a cotton gin. You can't create an automobile. You can't create an airplane. You can't create an iPhone. You can't devise aspirin or uh, heart surgery or antibiotics. You can't understand the Earth's spin on its axis or its revolution around the sun or ocean tides or weather or climatology or any of that. Or any of that. As I noted on Monday, the dominion impulse is inherent in man. Humanity will exercise dominion either in a godly way or in an ungodly way. This impulse to dominion is natural, and stifling it is unnatural. This means that much of the ancient world perverted this creational norm. Their mind was constantly on inward contemplation, and they marginalized or dismissed the physical world. 
But late in the Middle Ages, late in the Middle Ages, at the foundation of modern science, people began to break away from keeping their heads in the clouds all the time. And this sort of scholasticism that even influenced Christianity. Christianity itself, I'm saying, had to break away from those Greek ideas for science to, modern science to emerge. They returned fully to the dominion impulse, even if they didn't know it by that name. Understand this then, you might want to write it down. Modern science is simply a refinement of a critical aspect of the cultural mandate. Modern science is simply a refinement of a critical aspect of the cultural mandate. It's only as humanity acts on this dominion impulse that modern science is possible in the first place. Finally, let's uh, discuss the possibility of progress. Yes, progress. The idea of historical progress was exceedingly rare in the ancient world. In fact, aside from the Jews, it's almost unheard of. Ancient pagans saw civilization much as they saw the individual, the person's life. Birth, rise, ascendancy, prominence, decline, fall, death. Now this view, as you might imagine, led to pessimism and despair. Christianity inherited from the Jewish faith, specifically from the Bible, belief in the incremental progress toward a glorious age to come. An age ushered in by the Messiah, whom they knew later to be Jesus of Nazareth. True progress, therefore, not just in the individual life, but also in a society and culture, is the fruit of godly faith and obedience. Now, as it relates to the material world, the pagan view of cyclical history meant that humanity can't expect what we today call scientific advancement. Examples, quickly. The ancient Egyptians could develop pyramids, and then the invention stops. It doesn't really benefit anybody's daily life. You know that about the pyramids, right? They haven't helped you in your life. I mean, you say, thank God for the pyramids. They've helped me live a much better life. No. The Mesopotamians did invent boats, but it took modern science to develop boats that aren't dependent on unreliable, fluctuating winds. For thousands of years, people lived comparatively short lives because they didn't understand the human body. They didn't understand disease. Modern science understood human anatomy and how to harness it and how diseases can be combated. In short, biblical Christianity understood that things can be better than they are. Much better, in fact. It was this form of biblical progressivism, yes, you can write that down, biblical progressivism that was secularized by the Enlightenment. Now today, the progressives are almost always humanistic liberals and cultural Marxists. The problem, however, is not progressivism. The problem is the kind of progressivism. Modern science has bequeathed to us spectacular progress even at the hands of many unbelievers. In fact, today, mostly unbelievers. But here's the key. Who must operate according to biblical and Christian presuppositions to foster this progress? That's the key. Not whether they personally are Christian, but whether they have to operate on Christian theistic presuppositions. Why? Because history has a goal. History's going somewhere. We can create things today and create better things a thousand years from now. Our knowledge can increase, and in fact, it has increased. We're not destined to rise and fall and rise and fall in our knowledge, in our science. 
Today, software architects in Silicon Valley, not far from where I live, are working on uses of digital computing that will leave our present knowledge in the dust. It's remarkable. One day, we'll probably, I've talked with people about this, so I'm thinking this will probably be true, smart people, we'll probably enter movie theaters and watch movies as holograms displayed all around us. Wouldn't that be just amazing? The movie's about to start. You go in and you don't look at a screen. You have images, these really accurate, realistic holograms going on about you. Somebody comes up like with a sword right next to you. And you kind of duck because it seems so real. That's possible because science makes it possible. Or rather, I should say, God makes it possible by allowing humanity to engage in actual technological progress. Modern science rests partly on the supposition that knowledge and manipulation of the material world can progress, can keep building. That's a biblical idea. It was not common in the ancient world. It's biblical faith itself that makes scientific progress possible. Okay, so in conclusion, let's review. Theological presuppositions of modern science include these. The creator-creature distinction. The orderliness and stability of the cosmos. The goodness of the material world. The scientist's dominion calling and the possibility of progress. It's no wonder that modern science is, well, modern and not ancient. Why didn't science emerge earlier? The Hebrew faith and Christianity were minorities during much of the ancient era. And in the medieval era, the church was still tied too closely to an anti-scientific, scholastic Greek philosophy. When Christianity, however, overwhelmed culture, and when Christians broke away from that scholastic Greek way of thinking, modern science was born. The Greeks tried to reach truth by introspective meditation. They didn't recognize that observation by the senses of the material world and human thought and wisdom and reason interacting with those observations was no less a road to truth than non-empirical means and not inferior. Meanwhile, another anti-scientific problem plagued Islam. Islamic philosophers believed that if you spoke too strongly of universal laws, you would deny the freedom of God. Interesting. That sounds God-honoring, but really it's not. In other words, God can't be free unless he can be arbitrary. Now, taken to its logical conclusion, this means that God would be free to turn himself into a being just the opposite of what he is. That's kind of the conclusion of that, if it's taken to its logical conclusion, that God could turn himself into a hateful, deceitful, murderous, weak being, or even kill himself. But God's laws are both unchangeable and personal. What we call God's laws are not a cage that imprison him. They're a reflection of his character. Those laws, this creational law, is reflected in what we see in creation continuously upheld by Jesus Christ. But if you don't recognize that God's laws are stable, if you, if you believe that God is arbitrary, you won't have a great incentive to practice science, which requires repeatable stability. Much earlier, not long after the dawn of civilization, the ancient Babylonians had developed uh, all sorts of remarkable observations, including mathematical puzzles. Isn't that cool? Ancient mathematical puzzles. But the problem is that their deeply irrational religion required participation in all sorts of ferocious orgies in order to keep cultural chaos at bay. It was sort of a pagan view of atonement. 
the empirical knowledge that they gathered wasn't used to advance their culture, but to serve a perverse religion. Science failed in ancient Babylon, and it succeeded in ours. Not because our senses are better than theirs. That would be stupid, wouldn't it? Or because we can record things better than they can. Or because our minds are inherently smarter than theirs were. But because we operate according to Christian presuppositions, even atheistic scientists do, and the ancient Babylons did not. And the same is true, I could go on, but I won't, of all the other non-Hebraic and non-Christian civilizations. Because they didn't operate according to creational norms, they couldn't develop what we call modern science. This doesn't mean they couldn't accomplish great things, even invent remarkable things, such as Egyptian pyramids or Chinese fireworks. But these weren't science. They didn't enhance man's life. They didn't operate according to the scientific method. That method is possible only on biblical presuppositions. Everything good that we see in the world today, everything good, scientific or otherwise, is the result of the triune God and man acting according to the truth revealed by our God, whether that man is a Christian or not. Everything evil and destructive that we see is a result of human sin, not creation. There's no area of human delight, no comfort that we have, no progress, no blessing apart from God. God contributes the good things, and we as sinners contribute the bad things. Therefore, modern science is a striking example of this truth. If we do things God's way, we will prosper. If we go our own way, we will suffer retrogression and backwardness and heartache and death. Let's commit ourselves to doing things God's way, the biblical way, that makes science possible and everything good in the world possible. Thank you very much.